Well, hello, everyone. Uh, I am delighted to uh, introduce someone who I think has, needs no introduction. <laughs> uh, I'm delighted to have uh, Dr. Stephen Porges uh, with me today. Uh, Dr. Porges is a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University, um, the founder and director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium and the developer of you know, the polyvagal theory. And we can spend the next hour just talking about your accomplishment and research, but we're not going to do that. So, Stephen, welcome. Thank you, Manel. And, you know, very, very interested to find out uh, where we're going today. Yes, um, I am. Uh, I'm quite interested. We <clears throat> have uh, right now um, practitioners, therapists from from Saudi Arabia, from Emirates, from Bahrain, from Palestine, and more will be joining us, uh, I presume. So this is a, quite a great opportunity. And um, let me start with asking you um, this question: When sure. you prefer to be, you know, in this kind of conversation, to be addressed as Stephen, not Doctor Porges, which is, you know, in the in our culture, in the Arab community, you know, we use a lot of honorific, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, to address, you know, not just, you know, scientists and, mm -hmm. but even elders. So this, you know, me calling you Stephen might be a surprise to a lot of people. And I know, uh, would like to share why you. Okay. Let's that. start off with, uh, in using honorific titles, uh, tell me about the, uh, social distance that creates or doesn't create. <laughs> yes, it does. Oh. Okay, and what that's really saying is it takes away opportunities for accessibility and co-regulation. Mm. Yes, I, 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 I hear that, uh, and it's it's quite. I, I am quite. I'm sensing my sympathetic coming up yeah. as, as I'm going this. I'm quite delighted to have you as my co-regulator at this moment. Well, as we would say, just take a deep breath and relax. Uh, but the interesting part, I think it's very important, uh, the question, because it tells you about real life situations and how much we learn from our cultures and the institutions that are really proliferating in our cultures. And they create barriers or, uh, uh, between people. They're not facilitators of people uh, being able to co-regulate, engage. And the word I would use is keeping people from being accessible to each other and creating narratives why they should not be accessible. You know, you haven't earned that uh, level of, of value in my world, so why should you become accessible to me? And what that miss misses is really what are the values that we place on human beings and on people. And in many cultures, it could it's really something that could be objectified, <clears throat> meaning a degree or a wealth, you know, a, a element that we use to define status, but it has very little to do with the core of that person. So how are we going to know who other people are if we just protect ourselves with titles? That's a very good, uh, that's a very good thing. Well, um, I'm not going to ask you to, to explain the polyvagal theory. I think you've been asked that question many, many times, and there are many videos that um, would explain uh, to, to our audience. But let's start with the, with the, with the topic of, of our discussion today, or at least our initial start. 
is what does it mean to be polyvagally informed? What is it and what's the, is there a point in it being polyvagally? Yeah, okay. Part of what we're really saying is that it's kind of like a respect for the other person's physiological state and how that limits their ability to be accessible. So we just have actually described a perfect example that if a person is in a sense fearful of being evaluated by me, um, their physiological state is now moving out of a state that is accessible for interaction, for co-regulation, and moving into a state that's very defensive. So they're literally broadcasting or projecting their defensiveness to me. And how pleasant can that be for either one of us? Unless we we have this, let's say, a type of pathology where we get pleasure in seeing people squirm. And there are people who are like that, you know. But the issue is being polyvagal informed starts off with, number one, respecting the physiological state of oneself and the other, and also understanding how that physiological state is broadcast in the facial expressions, uh, in the posture, and in the voice of another. So we can hear the physiology in the voice. When a person's voice is high-pitched screechy or low-pitched roaring, we know their physiology is not comfortable, not calm. But if the voice is more melodic, more welcoming, our bodies relax in their presence. So yeah. we're all like we're all like infants wanting the, the, the our mothers to talk to us in a uh, in a lullaby like voice. And well, when we get for for the sake of the conversation, why would anyone need that? Why is it needed to be you know? Oh. Have oh. that, you know, calm down physiology because oh. we still live oh. in a culture uh, driven by, um, you know, uh, push and force. And, you know, yeah. I think if we push people enough, mm. they do what we're spo- they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, this leads us to another dimension of polyvagal theory, and that is these reactions to intonation, to gesture, to posture, to accessibility of others being broadcast shifts our physiological state and makes us broadcast accessibility to another. It's a trigger. They're reflexes. They're not intentional. So what you're really saying is we live in a world, it doesn't matter whether it's a Middle Eastern country or a U.S. country, we live in a world that tends to say that all our behaviors need to be intentional. So if we do something, if we react, there was a reason, there was an intentionality. Polyvagal theory explains that so much of our feelings and our behaviors are triggered by our physiological state, which means the efficient way is not to scream at the person and beat them up and tell them not to do something, is to get them into a physiological state where their intentional behavior can function, so where their top-down brain structures can actually regulate their behavior, where they're not in a state of terror or tantrum, uh, or anger or fear. Yeah. Well, my door to polyvagal theory was uh, with my kids' parenting. You know, that's kind of shifted everything. And it's it, once I realized that it sounds very simple and yeah. intuitive. It's like you know, if I want to get my kids to do what I'm asking them to do, uh, or they want, I want them to respond. Is you know, I need to, you know to be calm and and uh, get them this. What would would like to discuss is that sense of safety, which is yeah, so- yeah. But let's let's be uh, let's say um, self compassionate. We're human beings. 
So when your kid is acting out and is functionally ag- aggressive, or your body reads it as aggression, whether they're not listening to you, they're rejecting you, your physiology uh, gets triggered into your defenses. So it's very difficult for people to say, yeah, I understand it, but now how do I implement it? And that's where therapies, and that's where, well, I call neural exercises. That's where other types of practices like breathing and meditation become helpful, where we, in a sense, listen to our body and then, in a way, try to convince our body that it's safe. So you brought up this issue of safety, and we need to kind of unpack that a little bit. Um, Lots of people all over the world don't feel safe. And they think it has to do with everything outside their body. So they think if we remove this threat, everything would be fine. But instead, something else seems to replace that threat. It might not be a threat of, let's say, a terrorist, but it could be a threat of a job promotion or an evaluation or a test score. Our body, it can move into these states. And when it moves into those states, it, uh, it, it becomes a physiological state that doesn't support Safety, feelings of safety, it supports feelings of defense. So feelings of safety are not top-down, although top-down thoughts or visualizations can help. Feelings of safety are basically our autonomic nervous system broadcasting to our conscious brain that we're in a state that supports our health, growth, and restoration. It's as simple as that. When our body is doing its defined health-giving operations, we feel safe. But once our body feels in a way that it moves into defense, whether it's a a pathogen like you have a virus or COVID, our body is very different. It's under a state of threat. And our mental processes now sit on top of that body that's in a state of threat. And so our world is no longer a safe world. Yeah, well, you mentioned um, COVID and the pandemic, and I don't know if we could right now say we are post pandemic i'm i'm not sure where we sit in that but at least we're we're back to you know there's a degree of safety of socializing face to face and you know we we did that in october and you know um but how how does the pandemic have reshaped or affected our nervous system because i do hear from a lot of um mm-hmm clinician and therapist that it's it's becoming harder or there's spike in you know um mm. mental issues and and how to readapt to what we want to call back to normal life yeah well normal is what we do not what we had done so actually i lifted up my mask so i can put this on here um we're we're li- I wrote a paper for a psychiatry journal. And if you'd like a copy to share with your colleagues, uh, just send me an email and I'll send it to you. It was really what I call the paradoxical impact of the pandemic on our nervous system. Okay, the pandemic is basically we're under threat of a pathogen. Everyone gets that. But what has been the history of humanity? I mean, we're talking about uh, thousands, if not you know, let's say tens of thousands of years of humanity in different different uh, forms. Uh, but whenever, and this actually expanded to mammals, we're talking about millions of years. With many mammals, you know, when they're under threat, what do they do? They get co-regulated by someone of their own species. So what does a, a child do when it's hurt? It goes to the mother. What does a kitten do? 
when it feels like it goes to its mother. Uh, what do we do as adults when we are dysregulated or injured? We want someone else to take care of us. We call it caregivers. We want to feel safe in the arms of another. But what happened with the pandemic? The social cues that we have used for the history of humanity became threats in themselves. So, and then we were really either forced to be live by ourselves or live within very small units, meaning like marriages or small families, uh, in isolation from others with the assumption that those small units provide sufficient cues, not merely of safety, but of co-regulation to mitigate threat reactions. And what we already know is that many families or marriages have always been, you know, marginally dysregulated and have problems. And so being in a larger society has actually enabled a co-regulation of those family units. So they people didn't have to spend all their time with their spouses or their kids. The kids could go to school and socialize. The people could go to work. Uh, the adults, and they could have friends that help them co-regulate and in many ways even complain about their families. And now they didn't have that those options. So our nervous system was really in a quandary because it was challenged, uh, not merely from the pathogen, but from the isolation of not having socialization or sociality. And it's not the same. So like I picked up my mask. So I have a mask in my pocket wherever I go. Uh, I'm an older person. I have to be a little concerned. I have uh, supposedly a good immune system. But you don't know, in the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know whether it was uh, a a magic bullet that would kill us, you know, or, you know that getting it and you're dead, or was it just going to be a, a bad cold? And we started to find out that there are a lot of antecedents that go into the vulnerability of the disease. And in our own research, we found out that adversity history, trauma history, uh, changed the mental health trajectory of people during the pandemic who didn't get the disease. So they had trauma histories. The pandemic really messed them up in terms of depression, anxiety, and worry. I mean, things that you already know. But in we did a study, it was in the early part of the pandemic. It was in the spring of, of 2020. And in that sample of two, about 2,000 people, 100 had COVID or had gotten COVID. And what was interesting, if they had a, a no adversity, or let's, let's say a, a history that was literally devoid of adversity, none of the 100 came out of that group. But if they had high adversity, I mean, really high, it was like 75% probability that they got COVID in the first thing. So the susceptibility and on the first variant of COVID was very much related to adversity history. And this is extremely important to conceptualize because we think of the pathogen as affecting us uh, uh, basically independent of our mental health and our clinical history, when in reality, our vulnerability to all forms of intrusiveness, all forms of threat, pathogen, or reaction to uh, any form of adversity is going to be dependent upon what our body had done before. And in our work, it wasn't merely the adversity history. It was whether that adversity history was linked to an autonomic nervous system that had been retuned towards defense. So by using 
uh, measures of adversity, that was predictive. But if you then use measures of subjective report of physiological state, you really had a, a very strong trajectory of knowing what was going to happen. So in your clinical world, the adversity history is critical. And if you use, we have a tool that your your colleagues are welcome to use. It's called the Body Perception Questionnaire. It's on my website, and I think it's available on the Polybagel Institute website. And it's a subjective test of autonomic reactivity. And it, it, it's been used in these studies, and it's really quite powerful. So not merely just getting your clinical history, but did that clinical history retune the autonomic nervous system? Then the body is tuned to be uh, reactive in threat. Uh, let's, um, yeah, I'll, I'll put the resources for everyone to, 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 to get to. And, um, and so looking at, um, mental, you know, if, uh, I'm not sure what the term, the correct term to use these days, mental issues, mental, uh, diseases, uh, disorders. If we want to use that, you know, the, um, the diagnosis of mental health as we know it, um, how is it? Um, linked to the nervous system or is uh, the nervous system, you know, mm. drops many of these um, yeah. you know, okay. uh, the, symptoms or diseases, if you want to call them. Okay. So it, again, we'll go from a polyvagal informed perspective. Um, that informed perspective says everything is less about diagnoses and more about processes. So if you start looking at mental health disorders, there are some common core properties. Basically, behavioral state regulation, autonomic state regulation, facial expressivity, uh, hypersensitivities to stimulation, being overwhelmed, being dysregulated. <clears throat> These all have, in a sense, a, not merely a correlate. They can be viewed as being uh, sitting on top of or being derivative of a dysregulated autonomic nervous system. And what has happened is in the world of mental health, there's been a, a really a historic Inf uh, uh, bias towards top-down or mental processes as if they were orthogonal to our biology. And the answer really is they are literally sitting on top of our biology. And when our biology is in states of foundational states of survival, our mental processes uh, read the, that information and we become defensive and potentially aggressive or try to protect ourselves. We become very concerned about our own survival and not as concerned about our interactions or cooperations with others. So, in the, you know, I know it's much more complicated and, 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 and complex, not complicated, complex than that. But would it fair to say is, you know, all of these uh, disorders or manifestation of, of, of me mental health that is not going well is a dysregulated nervous system or a nervous system in, in a state of defense um, well, I think, okay, so I try to go down to the foundation, mm. the foundational process. So we can say a nervous system that is uh, uh, disorganized or defensive, but really nervous system in, entails a lot of structure. But if we say that the foundational, meaning the lower brainstem, which is all about basic survival mechanisms that regulate autonomic function, and that those systems are now locked into a state of defense and everything that builds on top of it we start understanding it and we start seeing literally a portable inter portal for efficient intervention and that efficient intervention is not 
uh, you need to do better, you need to think differently, or you need to, you know, it's not a CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy approach. It's saying, can I shift my physiological state through certain, uh, let's use the term neural exercises or neurophysiological principles? Can I breathe differently? Can I use posture? Can I vocalize with more intonation? Things that literally give feedback to re reorganize our autonomic state and calm it down. So, um, um, I heard you. I don't know. Preparing for today, I binged on all the videos and interviews you have on the on the internet. And 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 there's a sentence that stopped me that I'd like you to elaborate more on. Is uh, you said sociality is a neuromodulator to our yeah. physiology. Yeah. Can you unpack that? Um, yeah. Okay. So. Okay, we, we, let's say all our cultures, whether we're talking about Middle East or, or Eastern or Western cultures, they all have treated sociality as optional. And, and let's, let's go back to the beginning and, and, and define how do you define sociality? Well, it's the interaction, the co regulation of uh, more than one person with another. Now, we can, degree of sociality with our dogs or cats or horses, you know, what it requires for sociality is the bi-directional interaction. That's why if we go back to the initial start of our dialogue, accessibility defines sociality. If you're defensive, you're not accessible. If you're not accessible, you're not social. And this became really, in a sense, we go into something like autism, where people used to be defined as autistic if they were asocial. It was really that their bodies didn't feel safe in proximity of others. And so they were not merely not able to receive the cues. They were now broadcasting cues of defense. So we can see that acting out. We can see that happening with kids. If they don't eat, their bodies are now in a state of more survival. They're not going to listen to you because their bodies take precedence. They need the food. They need to eat or they need to move at times. And they're not going to just stop it. Uh, yeah, so the nervous, it's basically, we can think of it as layers. I think what has been missing is that it's really very simple. There's some very foundational survival mechanisms. And when those survival mechanisms, meaning neurophysiological mechanisms, when our bodies move into states of survival, sociality cannot coexist with that. Um, can you now, say more? Yeah. yeah, I will, because the real issue is, how is sociality, there's a circularity here. Sociality is derivative of being in a safe physiological state, but sociality modulates our physiological state. So it's both a product and a modulator or a mediator of it. So the example is we're interacting and you're anxious. And if I read your anxiety and respond, uh, interpret the anxiety as a lack of accessibility, my body would, it says, be mirroring yours, or you're not that anxious now, but let's say you were, and I would be more distant. And then we get into this cycle of supporting the physiological state that you're uh, in, which was getting a little bit more anxious and then more anxious and then more anxious. And that's affecting me. And so there's no social co-regulation. There's no bond. There's no accessibility. But if one person says, oh, I see those cues. What if I kind of slow things up a little bit? What if I smile? You know, what if I, so it's not like, what if I smile? It's not like it's an operant smile. 
what if I feel comfortable and as I talk in certain ways, my face starts to loosen up and I spontaneously smile? It's very different than doing this. You know, it's like uh, our bodies read the cues of others. And that is where sociality is a neuromodulator. So when the cues are those of cues of accessibility and welcoming and support, the other person's body becomes accessible, meaning calms down. Well, that brings, you know, if we go back or to add the complexity out to it, that, and that's my work background is that, you know, most of us come to a place where disconnected from our body, we're disembodied. We, we don't even have access to know what state my body yeah. is in. Yeah. How does that add to that? You know, so if I don't know how I'm feeling and I don't know what I'm projecting, and okay. it becomes this vicious. Um, it, it's a, it, it is a vicious cycle. But let's go now to the principle. There is a functional uh, reason why the body becomes numb. And there's a consequence. The body becomes numb when the feedback loops, the feelings are being rejected and not changing behavior. So that over time, we don't have feelings we because feelings would be disruptive to what the intentions are. And this leads to basically disease state, not merely mental health issues, but what have been called in mental health as phys physical comorbidities. Uh, let's say irritable bowel syndrome, uh, fibromyalgia, eczema, headaches, uh, dysautonomia, because numbness is really saying that the feedback loop from our body is not registering. And what that's really saying is that our nervous system is no longer regulating the physiological organs, and that's creating a platform for illness. And so, and then what, of course, does modern society say, well, these are stress-related illnesses. Well, yes, they are, but what is really the mechanism? It's not stress. It's the fact that our body has stopped regulating its organs. And it does that when it disrupts homeostasis, the neurofeedback loops that support health, growth, and restoration. And that is really the consequence. The consequence is numbed out. So the question that you're really asking, we need to, we need to put in a word, and the word is interoception. And that is our nervous system is reading uh, sensory information inside our body, and that goes up from our body into our brainstem, and we recognize this as pain or discomfort. But over time, if we don't respond to that, it becomes numb. We don't pick up those cues. So the first part is we lose the awareness of our own bodily feelings, and that is really the point you're bringing up. So the first part of an intervention, and that's where we have to get to, how do we normalize these systems? is through exercises like different types of breathing patterns where we exaggerate the input from a portal like breath. So if you inhale slowly, we'll start to create, your heart rate will rise, and when you exhale slowly, heart rate will calm down. And those, and this is where like yoga therapies and actually breathing therapies from very uh, disparate uh, domains they're all about neural exercising this system. We can do posture shifts. And this is actually quite interesting because this again gets into different cultural histories. So like within Islam, there's a lot of kneeling or bowing. And that is extremely important as a neural exercise. It triggers 
the autonomic basically triggers vagal function. So posture shifts are historically parts of rituals for many. Uh, it doesn't have to be structured religion. They're part of the history of humanity, and they are vagal exercises. Yeah, that's um, well. I want to open it up if anyone has any questions. Well, let me just add one other thing. Chants are also other forms. And again, these become part of rituals of traditions. So chants and vocalizations, intonation are literally using laryngeal and pharyngeal muscles. They're regulated by nerves that are vagal. So we're calming ourselves through the intonation of vocalizations. And we're calm ourselves when we listen to because we start recruiting these circuits as well. So the point I'm making is embedded in our history, people had developed tools to deal with numbness, to get people back on. And I think, um, you know, uh, when I look at my, my, my kid when he was two or three, when I now with the polyvagal lens, when I look at what he was doing, he was doing a lot of um, you know, exercises, so to speak, to, to, you know, um, regulate his nervous system with humming and skipping and, yeah. you know, sitting upside down. That is very, um, much intuitive in, um, yeah. Yeah. in what we do, but we come at some point and say, no, sit down. No, yeah. don't yeah. do this. And, uh, we start the numbing. Yeah. Well, I, I'll talk a little personal story because my mother used to chew gum. You know, my mother's been gone for several years, you know, 30 years. But the part is she used to chew gum, but my father detested gum chewing. <laughs> and, it's, and it's like it's like people who chew their fingernails. Uh, gum chewing is actually a powerful vagal exercise. This is what, you know, eating, ingestion. You get eating disorders where people try to eat too much because ingestion stimulates the same nerves that we use for calming. So people are ingesting, they're chewing to calm. So my mother was chewing gum to deal with her physiological state that was being expressed as anxiety. My father didn't like chewing gum and thought it was really a basic principle and a basic intentional behavior and didn't understand the context in which my mother was trying to calm down. And I, and what you're describing your kid, it's the same thing. We have to understand that many behaviors have really powerful adaptive features. And we have to learn basically from that intuition. Yeah. We have I, to I had this conversation of chewing gum with one of the teachers at my kid's school who was 15. And I'm trying to explain that it is calm them down instead of them being distracted. Yeah. Uh, but and 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 that you mentioned intentionality. And I think that's a very important thing, whether we're dealing with our kids, with you know, any any anyone in a therapy room, in any kind of transaction or relation, is that intentionality, we assume intentionality. Yeah. Uh, that's not what happens, really. Well, but, but remember, we are really being triggered by the behavior, and we're trying to make sense of it. And we, our initial reaction is, why would someone do something that would be so disruptive to us unless they wanted to? And yeah, and so we get angry, we get disappointed, and we try to lecture and we try to correct it by explaining what has happened to us when their bodies are basically screaming at us, metaphorically and really, uh, about the state they're in. So everything's proximal about them, 
and we want them to inhibit their body's defenses. And it's very, very difficult to to be that calm, quote, the adult in the room, because our body is being triggered. So it's one thing to be able to explain it, which is my role. It's another one to truly be able to implement it in, in the family and social unit that we live in. It's very difficult. Yeah, yeah um, it is. Um, we have a question about the effect of childhood trauma on the autonomic nervous system. Mm. You know, um, the, you know, lack of maternal uh, warmth, mm. domestic violence, and so forth. How does that affect? Um, well, we, the- in one of the studies we recently did, we, we basically used the scale of adversity history. And we looked at my autonomic nervous system regulation uh, scale. It basically maps right into it. The more uh, uh, adversity, you have more autonomic dysregulation, but it's not a causal model. This is really what we have to really understand is that there are individual differences in resilience or buffering mechanisms. But if we take the adversity history and then we look at the autonomic state of the patient or the client, and we see the subset has been retuned or has attributes now being autonomic states of defense, those are the ones who have the poor outcomes. The other ones actually do quite well. So in a, in a clinical setting, um, what would, if, if any practitioner or clinician therapist, psychiatrist, want to be polyvagal informed or want to bring the polyvagal lens or mm-hmm. language, uh, what would their first step would be? What would they bring into that you know, session okay. or setting? They, I would say what they would bring, actually I got an email uh, uh, yesterday from a young therapist says, what would I tell a, a new therapist to, to do on their journey? I said, listen to the voices of your clients, listen to the the body's voice of your clients and of yourself as well. So basically, your patient, your client is telling you all about their physiological state in the intonation of their voice, their facial expressivity, their gestures. Listen to it. You know, and what that means is that you learn to decode the physiological state of the, of the client. But you also need to respect that your physiological state is being broadcast to the client and can either make that enable that client to be accessible or more defensive. So we start understanding what we can detect from the other, that physiological state, number one, that awareness and the awareness that we are broadcasting our state in a, and our desire to co-regulate, which is to take one person who is destabilized and have them become regulated by another person. And in a way, therapy is all about co-regulation. And so the point is we need to understand, we need to develop a toolkit to understand that. And the first, I would say, even more primary to being polyvagal informed is to really understand at the essence that much of our behavior is being mediated by our physiological state. So if our body is destabilized, like we're hungry or we didn't sleep, or, you know, we had to rush up a flight of steps to get to a meeting, our physiology is in a different state, and that promotes different behaviors and different responses to others. We become biased towards negativity. Yeah, I I think, I would say, without any scientific research, 50% of arguments can disappear if if we're not hungry when we're talking. 
Yeah. And that's something that a lot of, you know, it's very easily dismissed. And yeah, um, I, yeah go ahead. I was going to make one, one statement. And it's a statement I kind of been playing with there. And that is to ask people, have they ever won an argument? <laughs> I don't know. Well, the point is, most people say, no, it's been very uncomfortable, very unpleasant. So the issue is, but everyone has arguments. So now you have real life examples of physiological states that have shifted into defense and have been broadcast as defense and re reciprocate in defense. And there's no resolution. You can't make it work when you're in an argument. Um, I wanna, uh, we have a question and I want to bring uh, Aisha to ask her question. Aisha, you can go ahead. Hi, Stephen. First Hi, of all, Andrew. thank you for your work. And I'm really grateful for your existence. I've, you know, your work has been really impactful on my work as a clinician and body worker, but I also always learn so much from who you are in your presence. So I just wanted to name that before I share my question. Um, I'm trying to prioritize because I have like 78 of them. But the question I am going to prioritize is, what are your insights on titration as a mechanism to bring into clinical work? And I ask particularly thinking of two things. One is breathwork. You know, there are breathwork modalities like holotropic breathwork or rebirthing that can be quite controversial. Some people have really transformative results with them, mm -hmm. but then they can be really jarring for the nervous system. And I yeah. wonder when that shock could be therapeutically valuable. My intuition is always to go more cautious and gradual and to introduce that safety more gradually. The other side of it I look at is particularly when I work with clients with a disorganized attachments pattern who find safety really threatening yeah. because they associate it. Yeah, well, let's, let's play with the, the latter one because it's more pr primary in my mind, more proximal in my mind. Um, when you have a trauma history, cues of safety are literally cues of, of threat because the history is that uh, there are cues of accessibility and accessibility creates vulnerability. So the issue is with a trauma history, accessibility is not, not a desired state because it translates in the mental imaging of vulnerability. So we have found that. So I developed this acoustic intervention called the safe and sound protocol. And it stimulates uh, social engagement behaviors, reduces auditory hypersensitivities, it calms the body. It functions like an acoustic vagal nerve stimulator. And it was working great with kids, but then the trauma community decided to try it out. And we start getting all the this feedback, and that is uh, it, it destabilized people. And then the trauma, trauma therapists got clever and they titrated. They're doing exactly what you're saying. They allowed, they reduced the duration of the intervention from an hour a day to maybe a few minutes a day. And they used a few seconds to see where the person was. So they use the stimulation to get a better understanding of the state that their client was in. Then they could expand it. The body had to learn, the nervous system had to learn that these cues were cues of safety. And the same thing occurs with breath work, because when you do slow exhalations, you're stimulating a lot of vagal activity, you're calming the body, but that creates a vulnerability for the body. A calm body, an accessible body is a vulnerable body. 
And so the feelings, those visceral feelings now that are triggered by those manipulations now have to be, uh, I would say, managed or mapped into positive top-down interpretations. And that's where titration comes in. So in people who work in the uh, somatic experiencing, uh, Peter Levine calls that pendulation. But it's all the same. The body, the nervous system gets challenged, and then it has to resolve. That's a neural exercise in polyvagal terminology. And so breath work, listening, uh, immobilization, they're all things that will challenge that system. But your first question now, which I got out of order, what was the first question? Um, the more kind of jarring breathwork techniques, oh, like allotropic. Yeah. Is there ever, in your perspective, a kind of therapeutic benefit to those? Uh, okay, you're, you're going to find out something more about me. I'm cautious about other people, meaning uh, I, I think it can be extremely jarring and it can be extremely uh, destabilizing. And I, so I would say, from my perspective, extreme caution from the from the jarring ones. Now, there are other people who will say that you have to do that to get that transformative effect. Uh, but I, I'm cautious of what I'm saying. I basically want the nerve. My view on life is that nervous systems should be, uh, in a way, they should be accessible and want to be accessible. Mm. So it's like we want to retune things so that we're, if we think of our arms being outward like this versus this. And what happens is that these systems, people may be like this, and suddenly they're getting a view that they're, really accessible and suddenly their bodies will go like that to protect themselves that is the jolt the jolt is 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 that accessibility or vulnerability and i kind of i use kind of a interesting i ask people certain questions like how do they uh visualize stillness okay they visualize stillness as this wonderful period of time where you can do mental exercises and have spiritual experiences is something where creativity and generosity and benevolence just emanate or is stillness vulnerability. So for many people with trauma history, there's nothing worse than stillness because they feel they're dropping into that abyss, that immobilized state. And we have to understand that what one person might see as their objective in life, which is to be still, to be calm. Another person sees that as the supreme vulnerability of their life. And you see this with people who have trauma histories where they can't sit still. They become very mobilized, very risk-taking, very active workaholics. They keep moving because if they don't move, that accessibility is translated to them as vulnerability. Thank you. That's very validating to hear. Thanks. Thank you, Aisha. Um, uh, anyway, I'm, I have a lot of co more questions that would last us another three hours. But if anyone has any question, uh, please go ahead. And while we uh, get to that, uh, one thing you talked about uh, a lot is that compassion versus empathy. And I, I would assume that would come as a surprise to many clinicians and therapists who would you know, they are, they hear about and learn that you need to be an empathetic practitioner, but you, you differentiate that no compassionate is what a therapist yeah. or clinician needs to be. 
versus and not empathetic. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, you know, this gets me into trouble with many <laughs> of my friends because they have branded their therapies using the word empathy and they view it as a positive aspect. If we think about uh, polyvagal terminology, there's a construct that I labeled neuroception, which is a reflexive reaction to cues in the environment as being safe or, or uh, dangerous, literally. It's not an awareness. It's not an interpretation. The body's making that decision. Really, the nervous system's making that decision immediately. And when someone is being injured, we have a neuroceptive response where we feel pain. That's empathy. And when we start saying uh, compassion, it's really we acknowledge that we may feel this empathetic feeling. But there's a second stage, and that is a stage of compassion where our bodies resolve that reaction, and now we are present for the other person. With empathy, we're responding about ourselves. And in the, the interesting use of the term of empathy, empathy research in a laboratory setting is to mimic the person's pain. That's what a lot of research is, and looking at parts of the brain that light up or autonomic reactions has a long history. But that's not how... Uh, empathy has been used within the clinical world. The clinical world, people say, well, you're empathic, you share the feelings. And I'm not, I'm saying that there's a dimension which is reflexive, and that's empathic. But there's a second dimension which is more self-observant of one's own reactions that resolve itself. And now we can be in the room with the person who is in pain, and now we can support that person. So we have this accessibility, generosity, and benevolence without cringing. And in the world of trauma, many of the survivors of severe abuse don't like to share their stories, even with the therapists, because they see the therapist empathically cringing, pulling back, and feeling their pain. And what they there, and it's an appropriate reaction they have, they feel like they have inflicted pain on that other person. So we have to understand that in the uh, classical definition of empathy from a research orientation. We want to acknowledge that we are empathic species, but uh, we want to be able to, in a sense, resolve that and be present and supportive of the other. I've just finished writing uh, a, a short little uh, thought paper with Michael Allison, and you met Michael Allison at yeah. the meeting, and it's basically using that construct, he, he was very taken with my distinction and talked about it as a two-component model, which it is, uh, of empathy and then compassion. And it actually goes back to my earliest research, and this goes back into the early 1970s, where I talked about a two-component model of attention. And the first one was reflexive, and the second one was intentional. And in a way, that is this two-component two model of of you know, empathy to compassion. So it's empathy to self-awareness to compassion. It's actually three phases within it. Okay. Uh, we have a question from Ashira. So I'm going to ask you to unmute and um, add your spot. Ashira, go ahead with your question. Hi. Thank you, Stephen. Um, I'm interested in the um, const what we call constant trauma. When you're, I, I'm from Palestine, so I work mainly with the Palestinian children and women who have been incarcerated. Mm. Um, and 
all sorts of things also in Gaza. So I wanted to know uh, most of the Western medicine, the way that it approaches the uh, approaches mental health is for people who in, are in a state of uh, aftermath, the post-trauma, um, where their nervous system is regulated and they can be in a place of peace to talk about the trauma. But yeah. what I've seen and what I've experienced personally and also with the people I work with is because our system is constantly in a state of um, anxiety, fear, mm. uh, fight or flight. It's also very difficult to take people off that state and bring mm. them up state yeah. of peace because mm. it's very dysregulating the moment they come out and they see the mm. same world and it yeah. hits them again. Yeah. Um, okay. So closest I've come to that is dealing with Ukrainian refugees in Poland. And because, again, they, they contacted me to kind of out some ideas off of me and they uh they were working with mothers and their children and my first point was that they have to work with the mother before they can work with the child but the interesting part and this is kind of like the metaphor you they were coming out of a war zone and this is where the similarity occurs with palestine they were coming out of a war zone and they were now in a therapeutic setting being given cues of safety so they were using my safe and sound protocol and the mother couldn't handle it. She lasted 40 seconds of listening before she had to run out of the room. Because when you come out of a war zone, you can't tell the body to calm down. And this is really the issue you're dealing with. How do you tell the body to come down, especially if they're going back out into the war zone? And that's really what you're also saying. So the issue is, I think, uh, I'm going to use this uh, kind of set of other words. I think the... Uh, movement dance therapists uh had had a uh had had some really in, intuitive strategies and that has allowed the body to move within the therapeutic setting because you having the individual sit down is basically against what their body will need to do in the environment but if they can move they can you can do therapy in a movement modality is what I'm saying. Then, then they start developing a skill set to manage those visceral feelings without becoming sedentary or immobilized. Because immobilizing someone coming out or in a war zone is not what the body will allow you to do. Because if it immobilizes, it may shut down, which will result in dissociative and, and you will not be able to do any good work either. So if you can incorporate some movement with the therapeutic strategies, then maybe you can build a greater resilience to deal with the uh, horrific experiences that these people are having. Thank you. Um, well, that brings me to um, a trend of, that you, I've heard you use a lot, um, which is uh, vagal uh, efficiency. Yeah. What is that? Well, in polyvagal words, what we want is to recruit this uh, the uh, vagus that comes from the ventral side of our brainstem part that's towards our front because that vagus is linked to the muscles of our face and head it's linked to calming and its patterns are when you get measure the output of it in heart rate 
it gives you heart rate variability, respiratory science arrhythmia. And when that is higher, you're healthier, basically. And when you're under demands or threats, it gets lower. And when you're ill, it gets low. So we try to get that system going. That system acts as a vagal break. What that really means is that uh, we have a heart rate. Everyone has, if they're alive, have their hearts beating. But the rate that it beats is different when the vagus is functionally imposing an inhibition on the heart pacemaker. So for many of us, our basal heart rate could be in the high 60s, low 70s. But if we took that vagus off, our heart rate would be between 90 and 120. So we are basically functioning with a vagal break on. And what that enables us to do is to very efficiently and rapidly move that break on and off. And that gives us increased metabolic outputs very efficiently without stimulating our sympathetic nervous system, which is much more diffuse and very metabolically costly. So we become destabilized psychologically and behaviorally when we pull the vagal break off and we stimulate the sympathetics. But when we have an efficient vagal break, we can pull it off to stand up, to go up a flight of steps. Then when we sit down in our chair, it goes back on very rapidly and we calm down and we're engaged in our, our behavior. So life on this functional level of social interaction, of health, requires an efficient vagal break, and that's vagal efficiency. And what we're finding is that many disorders, including trauma histories, but disorders like um, I don't mention one is cyclic vomiting, which people have, you know, they're regurgitating all the time. There's also a disorder called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is hypermobility, uh, but it's linked with a lot of anxiety. Those disorders are actually uh, categorically, their vagal efficiency is extraordinarily low. So you can, uh, with Ehlers-Danlos and cyclic vomiting, you can identify those people, their, their standard deviations off the mean. But with, with trauma, it's pushing the mean to a lower level. It's not, it, they're a part of the same distribution, but their reactivity to the world is being mediated by this vagal efficiency metric. Vagal efficiency is really measured by looking at measures of that vagal component of heart rate or respiratory science arrhythmia and heart rate itself. And it's taken over short periods of time and things like posture shifts are are used. So we have a person going from supine to seated to standing. And then we look at the regression line of the heart rate and the measure of RSA. For some people, it's a very steep, uh, almost a perfect linear regression line. For others, they're totally unrelated. But when it's unrelated, it's really saying that our vagal regulation of our heart is not systematically and efficiently regulating our heart rate. It's as simple as that. So you want a vagal break that when we recruit it, it does its job. But if we're numbed out, this goes back to the earlier questions of numbing out. Numbing out is really uh, going to be disrupting of that vagal break. It means that that feedback system is no longer tightly linked. Well, um, that, so what I'm hearing you saying and how I understand vagal efficiency and using the vagal break. And, you know, ultimately, we, we it's not human, I guess, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is to be regulated. That that's not the how the nervous system is. It's it's to move to through the different states and recruit, hmm. you know, yeah. uh, the different uh, you know, um 
outcomes um, from different states in state mm. of safety, or there's a, uh, a state of threat to mm. remove the threat and go back mm. to safety. Yeah. So a vehicle efficient, a person with vagal, with an efficient vagus, or let's say has high vagal efficiency, if they were challenged, uh, they would have resilience. It would come right back. And it's not that they're basically, we could enter the world with similar vagal regulation, but under challenges, they would be removed, but the recovery slope might be different for different people. But a person with a vagal efficient system, it recovers, they're resilient. And so they're really, their nervous system is functionally evaluating metabolic demands and uh, it's sometimes in anticipation. So if the nervous system anticipates great metabolic demand, it takes the vagal break off. Mm-hmm. That's why fear will pull it off because our body is now prepared to mobilize, which requires uh, sympathetic activation, which is metabolically costly. Oh, well, I can't, uh, well, we're heading close to uh, our time. So let me ask you this, where well, it's two questions, so I'll, I'll start with one. Uh, what is the polyvagal, you know, learning edge right now? What is polyvagal uh, theory teaching you now after I think it's been over 20 years? Of, uh, yeah. You introducing it to the world? Well, it keeps teaching me. Okay, so it's interesting to be reflective about the products or the things that you actually create. So it wouldn't be useful if it weren't useful to me. So it helps me understand myself, my spouse, my wife, my kids, my granddaughter. It helps me understand it from uh, not from an intentional worldview, which is what we've all been bombarded with, but to have better understanding of what happens on these reflexive levels. And it gets me really into this focus that we have to literally stop and listen to our body. We have to observe, we have to be better observers of ourselves and others. We have to be a good witness. And what that means is we can't jump to making interpretation of intentionality. So we have to be more, it's a self-compassion and compassion of others. And that's my journey is really this greater understanding of what happens when people's physiology moves from this resilient vagal state to a sympathetic and dominant reactive state and how understanding they are of the world they're in, or are they just locked into being in a state of defense? And what I'm realizing and learning along this journey is that when we're locked into defense, it's very hard to even comprehend what's going on inside of us. It's so much easier to blame what's outside of us on our on our behavior and our physiological state. So our personal narratives are going to make us into heroic individuals, and we're going to give up our own sense of responsibility or agency to learn about our own body. So the journey really is learning about our body and learning how to manage it. So we have great individual differences in that resilient feature. But we should learn to be more aware when we lose our resilience and how to manage that. That means I can feel in my body a destabilization. What is my next step? My next step is to move my body into a place where it can come. Is it listening to music? Is it walking by the ocean? Is it, you know, seeing a friend? What is it that enables my body to calm down? And that becomes 
literally our our lesson book. We need to know what calms our bodies down. That's uh, a long life uh, lesson, and I find nature is a, for me at least. Yeah. And I uh, I haven't met someone who doesn't think the same that nature yeah. doesn't have that kind of co-regulatory um, effect. And if if you you know, how would you want to see the world in you know through you know for me personally, and I have only been learning about polyvagal for the last three or four years that I wish everyone would speak polyvagal. Yeah. So how would, yeah. where would okay. you want to see polyvagal? Okay, so I basically, uh, at, at the meeting we had in Atlantic Beach, I basically saw it in front of my eyes. I said that if we can create environments that are safe enough for people to be who they are, the world will be a wonderful place. The issue is, it doesn't have to be overly safe. We don't have to take away all risks, but safe enough that people can be who they are, then we can learn. I mean, it's going to be such a creative and generous world, benevolent world, when people feel safe enough. Now, we also, from making that statement, we understand that the world is structured not to be safe enough because it creates motivations. Motivations are to work harder, to acquire more. You know, it, it's all, but also motivation not to spend time allowing your body to generate what it is and who you are, your own creativity, your own brilliance. It's saying the body has to work, has to do these things. We don't have the privilege of allowing it to be what it is. The world, I think, polyvagal theory is all about a better understanding what it is to be a human being. That's as simple as it gets. Uh, can you talk a little bit, uh, uh, because I want to end it back to the clinical and therapeutic and mental health. Um, what would that look like to be? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, got, I got it in a simple set of words. Yeah. Uh, in the world of uh, healthcare, and this goes beyond mental health, it's physical health as well. We think that care comes from outside, or at least health comes from outside. There's something wrong, it gets fixed. It gets fixed with a procedure, it gets fixed with a pharmaceutical or a surgery. What polyvagal theory emphasizes is that healing is within the body. The body does the healing. It doesn't mean it doesn't help or get an advantage from external information or context or treatments, but the body, the nervous system has to be welcoming for these uh, situations. So uh, so I think the message is to have an understanding about the body's defensiveness. Can you say more? Okay, so I, I actually got distracted because the my laptop was unplugged and it was the battery's glass, I turned it on. So you have to repeat your question and then I will elaborate. Well, my, 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 my original question was, you know, how do you want to see the, the world? And in terms of the mental health professionals, yeah. okay. how did that polyvagal uh, translated? Um, yeah, you know, okay. You know. So let's go on. So the issue is that life has been so much about, uh, we talk about stress and we define it as someone doing something to us. Uh, we don't understand that stress is a reflection of that autonomic nervous system being in a state of threat. 
We also think that if we remove threats from our environment, we'll be safe, but we have done very little to teach our nervous system how to be safe, experience safety. Now, what does that mean in terms of healthcare practices? It means that how you engage and interact with your clients is critical. The clinic that you structure in the physical environment is critical. Everything about the context and the interaction with another human being determines whether their nervous system becomes accessible or not. So polyvagal theory basically hopes to move the mindset or the bias from treatment-oriented, where we do things to others, to enabling the nervous system to find itself. So when we're talking about becoming safe, we're saying that it's not merely removing threats, it's enabling the nervous system to move into a state that the body reads that state as being a state that supports safety. And that enables creativity, benevolence, trust to occur. So if we deal in environments that are really uh, critical and basically lack trust, and again, this becomes a lot of the world that we're in, the uncertainty of the world can be reflected in feelings of lack of trust. If we think of trust as, you know, like the mother and the infant, the attachment model she brought up, trust, love. I don't even like to use the word love because people think of it as kind of a magical point or experience. But trust is critical in everything, whether it's business, whether it's politics, whether it's family, whether it's friend. Trust is everything for a social mammal. And the world that I want to see is a world that enables trust to flourish. And what that means is that cues of safety have to occur in a bi-directional way. And what that means in a mental health and physical health issue is from the receptionist, from the physical context of a clinic, the body has to feel safe there. Yeah. Uh, I, I know I keep saying one like question, but last thought is, you know, the Polyvagal Institute. And I know that it's there's a lot that is coming out of it. There's wonderful practitioners who are taking you know, polyvagal into their own practices, you know, uh, medical, um, you know, like, um, like Heather and Michael, mm. all of these, um, how would people, you know, do more, um, in their respective professions, whether it's mental health or anything mm. else? Um, how, what, what do you see the role of the polyvagal institute right now? Well, I, I see the role is, first of all, it's only two years old, you know, it's two and a half. It's actually, uh, when the pandemic started, we had the idea. So the, the part is it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's creating a platform for people who can use the ideas. So from my perspective, it's the platform for people to take the ideas and use it within their discipline. So. And, and that becomes the interesting creative aspect where I want to sit back and watch. I don't want to, in a sense, be pedantic and uh, proselytize. I want the creativity. The theory gives a structure, but the actual people in education, in medicine, now a little in business, someone in architecture, even, that they're expanding the application of the principles to all the experiences of being a human because being a human is being a social organism that requires and benefits from trusting experiences. And to watch that start to unfold and be creative is just, uh, it's, it puts a smile on my face. So the, the point is the Polyvagal Institute is all about allowing or giving permission to others to be their creative selves and for them to find a safe 
context where others are not competing or overly evaluating them, but building tools that serve a common function. And that is for people to understand more about what it is to be a successful human. Wow. Um, Stephen, I, um, I could really sit and talk to you for hours. Um, that would not be, <laughs> I don't think you would uh, want that, but I'm quite really grateful, like everyone else who would be watching. And on a personal level, I'm inspired by your love of, you know, learning and being inspired by others, mm-hmm. you know, and not having that um, feeling of, oh, I'm, I'm the creator of the polyvagal theory and everyone needs to listen to me kind of <laughs> that we see. Well, that would be, that would be very boring for me. I'm not sure about everyone else, but <laughs> so, so the issue is you have to know what I want. I want to hear yes. new things. I want to hear creativity. I want to see how i want to learn from others and i think uh we have to understand what our personal journey is and my journey is you know i I, you could do it as a gardener or dropping a few seeds or a facilitator i i don't want to own anything i want people to develop you know i want them to learn about themselves and i want the world to benefit from people being more in contact with what it is I would say what their evolutionary heritage has given them. And I think it's remarkable once we understand that as a species, we want to trust, we want to be accessible, and we want to socialize. And all those activities are functioning neuromodulators. They make us healthier and happier. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And I look forward till we meet again, uh, whether, you know, in Atlantic Beach or somewhere else in the world. And I hope this uh is also um my intention is for this to be a seed also to for yeah. the Pokemon to grow in the um in the region everywhere to be honest yeah. yeah well well thank you and i really appreciate being welcomed in your community so thank you very much thank you have a great day and uh, uh enjoy the view thanks thanks okay, okay. bye bye and thank you for all the good questions and for the lovely colleagues take care thanks. okay bye bye